0: Welcome to the Fairview Church podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Good morning, Fairview. This morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 through 27. Uh, the first parable in the Gospel of Matthew and the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, from the time we can put together syllables and we can comprehend things, we love stories. Kids love stories. They love the stories that, you know, that they've heard at bedtime over and over and over again. Uh, Teenagers, young people, students love stories. You know, we uh, uh, go to the movie theater to watch certain stories or we stream miniseries and television series on on our devices or uh, even video games, you know, have a, a sort of a story element through them as you're like making your way through different levels and courses, you know. Um, sorry, Mario. Or princesses in another castle. You know, there's a story being told there. I mean, we just love stories. I mean, we love reading. We like curling up on a on the sofa with a a great book, whether it's you know a, a biography of some historical person or whether it's some si- kind of fiction or uh, you know romance novels, whatever it is. We just love stories. We love for we love them. We live for them. Something deep within us hungers for stories. But when we really think about stories, we've got to recognize that we don't just live for them. We live by them also. Everybody has their own understanding of their own life in terms of a story, and we are living or making choices in terms of what we believe to be the story of our world. And when we look at the scriptures, you know, we think as Christians, we want to live according to the biblical story. That we see in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that scripture, when we understand it properly, gives us not just a bunch of timeless wisdom, but gives us a the grand narrative that seeks to explain our world. God has chosen, through his word, to tell his children the story, capital S story. Not a bedtime story that's going to rock us into a gentle sleep, but the story that we awake to in the morning. It tells us why we're here what life is all about. God's story tells us who we are and what has gone wrong with the world and what God has done to redeem and restore this broken creation. And and he tells us what the future holds for his people. So we live for stories because we're wired this way to live by stories also. So taking into consideration all that about stories, it's no wonder then that Jesus announced the coming of God's kingdom by telling stories. In fact, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus relying on metaphors and analogies and and all these different stories as he begins to to talk about what the kingdom of God is and what it looks like. And so we're beginning today a series on some of the stories that Jesus told. We're going to be looking at several stories in the weeks ahead. And this one is one of the first ones that he tells. But this is what Jesus does. When he's he's asked about the kingdom of God or when he's teaching on the kingdom of God, he doesn't just give you uh, 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 truths about the kingdom. He invites you into a different way of seeing the world. That's what a good story does. The parables of Jesus, the stories that Jesus told, they're not just clever stories about life the way it is. They're meant to challenge us to live life according to the way that it should be, according to the commandments of the creator. They're meant to jar us. They're meant to make us think I've heard it said before, you know, that the, the parables of Jesus are uh, heavenly uh, 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 stories with earthly meanings or, or whatnot. But I, I actually think that, uh, or, or earthly stories with, with heavenly meanings, but I actually think that these stories do come from Jesus and they do have very real here and now earthly applications that we need to be aware of. So 2,000 years later, we come to these stories of Jesus and we're. We want to understand them. We want to learn from them. We want to apply them, even though we know the world is a different place from the one in which these stories were first spoken. Still, these these stories, they're like an invitation into the way of wisdom. They call us onto a road, the road that leads to the good life, the life of God's kingdom, This, this vision of human flourishing. They show us, not just tell us, they show us what the world looks like when God is king and when we're living according to the way that he's always intended us to live, when we're experiencing the holiness and righteousness and happiness that God has always wanted us to have. You know, Jesus told stories to invite us into another way of seeing the world. You know, what's great about a story is that it appeals to the imagination. That's why we love stories so much. We love the imagination and Jesus, you know, Jesus could have said, he could have just said, you know, you ought to be a good neighbor to anyone in need, even if the person is not from your tribe or ethnicity. But instead he gave us the story of the good Samaritan. Jesus could have said, God is merciful and patient and he loves to welcome a repentant sinner home. But instead we got the story of the prodigal son returning home from the pigsty. Jesus could have said, pride will keep your prayers from being heard. But instead, we got the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, we're going to look at the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son, and we're going to look at the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the weeks ahead. But I just want you to see that in each of these cases, Jesus told a story, not just to communicate a point, but to open our eyes and ears, and especially our hearts, To the richness of his teaching, to give us a, to to tell, to tell a story is to welcome us into a world in which our vision can be changed. We can have a powerful vision of the world that he's offering us. So this morning we look at the first of Jesus' stories in the Gospel of Matthew. It comes at the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the story of the two builders that we just read. One wise, one foolish. And I want us to take a closer look this morning at the story and see what does Jesus want us to do in light of this this picture that he's painted for us. All right, so first we see two builders, one wise, one foolish. It's a very simple story. It's centered on these two builders. And the difference between the two builders is this. One of them is wise because he hears the words of Jesus and acts on them. And the other builder is foolish because he hears the words of Jesus and doesn't act on them. Notice both of them hear, but only one of them hears and obeys. Both of them hear what Jesus says, but only one of them hears and acts on what he has heard. So let's take a a look at both builders for a moment. Uh, The wise builder represents the person who knows how to live. I mean, that's what wisdom is all about, isn't it? A life of discernment. It's when you know how the world works and, and how it is supposed to work according to God's design. It's when you live in light of what God says to be true about the world. So, so the wise person knows the truth because he's heard it from Jesus and then he acts on it. That's the wise builder. And when Jesus uses the word wise, he's drawing on a rich Jewish tradition of wisdom literature in which the wise person is the the one who observes the law of Moses or the Torah. It's the one who follows the wisdom of Solomon. So go back to Proverbs, for example, Proverbs chapter two, verses one and two. Solomon says, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding. This is Solomon talking. and I just want you to notice how wisdom and accepting my words are linked together in the way Solomon's talking here. Jesus is leaning on the wisdom of Solomon insofar that he's saying, he's saying, I'm the king who's greater than Solomon. If you listen closely to my wisdom, if you direct your heart to understanding, and if you accept my words, that means not only to receive what Jesus says, but to live in light of it. Then you'll be like the wise builder. And I just want us for a minute to recognize, to grasp just how revolutionary it was for Jesus to say this. Okay, uh because you know it was common for religious leaders in Jesus's day to point people back to the Old Testament law, the law of Moses or to point people back to the prophets or to point people to the wisdom literature and Jesus to say it would have been common for 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 someone to say, you know, you are wise if you live according to the commands of God. You are wise if you follow the law of Moses. You are wise if you listen to what God revealed through the wisdom literature, what God revealed in the Old Testament, and you follow it. That's what any Jewish rabbi would have been expected to say. But Jesus went a step further in that he didn't just say, the wise person is the one who hears the words of Moses and acts on them. He said, the wise person is the one who hears my words and acts on them. Do you see how Jesus turned the attention to himself? I mean, basically, he's saying, listen, all this wisdom, this is the end of his sermon, all this wisdom that I've given you in the Sermon on the Mount, everything that I've been teaching you, all this wisdom that you've heard from my teaching, if you hear and obey my teaching, you're wise. And if you hear and disregard my teaching, you're a fool. In other words, the wise man builds his house on the rock, not just any rock. And that helps us understand just how high the stakes are here. Jesus isn't saying, "Hey, everybody, I'm just here to be your life coach to help you get on with life the way that you want it." And I want to make, I want to be as helpful as I can be, and to just help you have the life you've always wanted to live. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't come alongside and say, "You know, I hope you'll find out whatever foundation works for you. Build whatever house you want, or whatever foundation, as long as it, you know, just live your life as you please." No, He is saying. My words are the only rock that is a sure foundation. There is no other rock. You build on what I say, or you're a fool headed for destruction. That's what he's saying. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. And if you're here this morning, and maybe you're visiting, or maybe you're not a Christian, you may be thinking, aha, I knew it. I just thought I would come to church with someone, and I get called a fool. I get it. Christians are wise and all the rest of us are foolish. It's so arrogant, you know? And I get why you'd think that, so I just want to make sure that everyone in here understands who Jesus is talking to, okay? Uh, Jesus is talking primarily to his disciples and to the crowds that have followed, who have gathered at the mountainside to hear him teach. He's talking to his fans that's who's listening. So the point Jesus is making is not that Christians are wise and everyone else is foolish. It's that obedience is wise and disobedience is foolish. And his message is just as much for the church today as it is to anyone outside the faith. I mean, he's basically saying, hey, all of you in here who claim to follow me, All of you who come to church and you hear my words preached week in and week out. All of you who open your Bibles throughout the week and you listen to my voice. All of you who say you're a Christian. If you only hear me, but don't obey me. You're like the foolish man, no matter how much you think you're the wise man. See, this isn't about outward categories of churchgoer versus non-churchgoer or Christian versus secular. It's about truly following Jesus rather than just hearing Jesus. Now, truth be told, we may still not like this message very much. I'm not sugarcoating anything that Jesus is saying here. And there's something in you that may resist what Jesus is implying here. And that's understandable. Listen, people have been resisting the bold teachings of Jesus for 2,000 years. So we're... You know, we can get in line. Uh, but I'm not going to soften what Jesus says here for you because I, I I don't think my purpose is to make it easier to digest. I want to give it to you straight because I think it's the best way to honor Jesus and also just respect you. As someone hearing what Jesus is saying here, everyone here that is here today, that I think it's the most respectful thing I can do. But I do want us, I think it's good for us to examine our hearts and to ask the question why this teaching rubs us the wrong way. You know, this idea that uh, Jesus is saying, hey, do what I say, put into practice what I say, otherwise you're a fool. It sounds pretty offensive, and I just want to dig into the offense a little bit and just see why do we feel that way? Why would it like we bow up a bit when we hear something like this? And I think there's actually a few reasons. The first reason is because we want more than one option. We want more than one option. We live in a world that conditions us to have choices everywhere. And just think about all the choices that we have available at our fingertips. Our great grandparents and uh, 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 you know a generation ago, a century ago, would be shocked at the number of choices that we have when it comes to things we want. I mean, just walk down the aisle at the supermarket, walk down the cereal aisle. You can find my favorite cereal, Flintstones Fruity Pebbles. It's my favorite. But you know what you can also find? You can find cocoa pebbles. You can find marshmallow fruity pebbles. A few years ago, they went a little too far and they made candy corn pebbles. <sighs> Halloween is coming. I know candy corn is a popular snack this time of year, but I am just convinced it's of the devil. It is not. It's going a little too far with the candy corn pebbles, okay? But I mean, just all the different kinds, the variations of so many things. We, are, we love options, We are conditioned to always have our options open, right? And it's no surprise then that we live in a world of buffet-style Christianity. Supermarket aisle Christianity. People pick and choose whatever they want out of different religions. There are lots of people that say they like Jesus, but they don't love the church. Or they don't like certain parts of the Bible. Or other parts of Christianity. And you know, some Christians who trust in Jesus Christ and who say that he is Lord and Savior, and they go to church weekly, they still Pick and choose the parts of of Jesus' teaching that they want to abide by. Whatever parts they find helpful. We resist this choice that Jesus seems to make when he says, look, you're either wise or you're foolish. But here's the deal. This is not the only place that Jesus puts us in the moment of deciding between two options. It's not. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving us either or options. If you're familiar with the sermon, you may know what I'm talking about. Do you remember how Jesus talks about earthly treasure or heavenly treasure, right? He talks about having a good eye versus an evil eye. He says you can't serve God and money. And right before telling this story, Jesus says there are two paths. One broad, one narrow. Only the narrow path leads to life. He also said there are trees that bear good fruit. There are trees that bear bad fruit. It's not both and. It's either or. And I know in our society today, people like both and kinds of options open to them everywhere, especially when it comes to religion and spirituality, where you can kind of cobble together whatever both ands you want. I'll take some of Jesus. Yes, I like this, but I also really like this practice that you know from this other religion. Or I will, I want to take Jesus, but also along with some other stuff. And I, I don't want to follow I mean, I don't want to follow everything that Jesus says, because that could be a little bit radical. I don't want to go overboard here. So, so I'll just d- disregard the part about money that seems too extreme, or I'll just leave aside this warning about anxiety, or, you know, or I'll do what I want with my sex life because that's really my business. You know, we don't like either ors because we live in a society that has conditioned us to always have options. But Jesus says, I'm taking away everything in the supermarket and I'm leaving you two options, wise or foolish either obedience or disobedience. There's another reason that we resist what Jesus is saying here. And that's because we like to look at the outside, not the inside. We look at the outside, not the inside. Here's what I mean by that. We stay on the surface of things. And we think, you know, you know as long as my life looks good, as long as I'm not too different from anyone else on the outside, I'm fine. Listen, church people, we make this mistake all the time. We do. We think that because if, if we live moral, decent lives and everything looks okay to everyone else or because we go to church or because we volunteer our time for charities or, or whatever, uh, that, we, we, that we're somehow going to be okay. But I want you to notice really carefully here that the wise and foolish builders did not build different kinds of houses. Their houses looked the same. No one could tell that the house was different. Their foundation was unseen. One foundation had been dug down deep and was on the rock. The other foundation was on the sand. But on the surface, the houses looked the same. But what was underneath? What was the foundation like? Listen, your life may look like that of a lot of people around you, but it's when the storm comes. That the foundation gets exposed. And we think because the exterior of our house looks similar to everyone else's, that we're in the same situation. But I'm warning you here, even if the house looks the same, it may be built on a healthy foundation. The houses may look identical, but if if one is built on something other than the Sermon on the Mount, something other than faith in Jesus Christ, then it is headed for destruction. You're either on the rock of Jesus' teaching or you're not. Don't think that just because you look great on the outside that you're truly following Jesus. And then there's one more reason we resist this teaching, I think. And I think it's that we think, well, we're fine as long as we believe the right things. As long as we believe the right things. This, is, this may be the biggest danger for theologically conservative, doctrinally minded churches like this one. You know, we think that as long as we believe the right doctrines, we're good. We hear the words of Jesus and we believe them. You know, we've got our, you know, theological checklist down. We've affirmed all the right doctrines. We've got the right belief system in place. So that's what we've got. But notice, that's not what Jesus says. According to Jesus, it's not enough to hear what Jesus says, to know what Jesus says, to memorize what Jesus says, to sing what Jesus says, or even spread what Jesus says. You are the foolish builder if you don't do what Jesus says. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the German pastor whose life was snuffed out because of his resistance to Hitler, he wrote this. He said, humanly speaking, we could understand and interpret the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. Jesus knows only one possibility. Simple surrender and obedience. Not interpreting it or applying it, but doing it and obeying it. That is the only way to hear his word. But again, he does not mean that it is to be discussed as an ideal. He really means us to get on with it. The only proper response to this word which Jesus brings with him from eternity is simply to do it. Jesus had spoken. His is the word, ours the obedience. It's not enough to hear the truth or to know the truth intellectually. Jesus calls for obedience to the truth. There's a pastor in Zambia, Joe Capoglio, who puts it this way. He says, if if people are just hearing Jesus' words but not doing them, the church is built on sand. Knowledge must translate into action and theology into life. So, so we've seen the two builders, all right? One wise, one foolish. We've seen how much it matters what kind of foundation there is. But now the story shifts, and we see the great storm come. The rain falls, the floodwaters rise, and the winds beat upon the house. So let's look closely at this. One storm, God's judgment. One storm, God's judgment. Now there are two major interpretations of what the storm represents, okay? Some people say this is represented by the storms of life. You know, those things that will happen, the trials, the heartaches, the sufferings that are going to come that we all go through in life. And Jesus is the rock for us during the storms of life. We pass through difficult times and we need a source of stability as we face the crises of this present life. Now listen, that application is true. It is true as a long pedigree. It's a good interpretation. But I don't think that's the primary thing that Jesus is talking about in this passage. And I want to show you why. When Jesus talks about the storm here, I think he's pointing us ahead to the storm of God's judgment. When the day comes that we will all stand before the judge and our lives will be evaluated. And here's why I think he's doing so is because all throughout the Bible, the storm represents the judgment of God. I mean, go all the way back to Genesis. Noah in the flood, right? The world was very wicked and God sent the flood. He sent divine judgment. Or consider Ezekiel 13, one of the prophets Jesus may have been drawing from. It says this. So this is what the Lord God says. I will release a whirlwind in my wrath. Torrential rain will come in my anger and hailstones will fall in destructive fury. I will demolish the wall you plastered with whitewash and knock it to the ground so that what? Its foundation is exposed. The city will fall and you will be destroyed within it. Then you will know that I am the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? God talks about a storm of wrath coming in which he tears down the wall and exposes the very foundation. Something similar is in Isaiah 28 verse 17. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level. Hail will sweep away the false refuge and water will flood your hiding place. So do you see how Jesus is taking the words of the prophets about the storm of God's wrath and he's applying them here at the end of the sermon? Even the context of the sermon points in this direction. If you kind of back up just a little bit, we didn't read it this morning, but if you back up just a little bit in Matthew chapter seven, right before he gets to this parable, um, uh, the previous paragraph is about Jesus telling people, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, it would be odd for him to take that picture of the last judgment And then switch over to the storms of this present life. It's not that the storms of this present life isn't in one way of applying it. But the main thing he's going for here is to say, listen, this is what Jesus wants at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to come face to face with our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is God's judgment. I know you may be here and that doesn't sit well with you. We, we tend to resist some of what Jesus says about judgment. and I just, I just want to make sure you realize that the judgment coming, the judgment that's coming is identical. There's no difference in the storms. God isn't playing favorites here. The storm coming to the Christian and to the non-Christian alike, it's the same storm coming to the churchgoer and the non-churchgoer. Because when we stand before God, we're all equal by God's standard. Like we are standing before him. And if you resist the idea that we'll give an account for our life, if you resist the idea that God might judge you, but if you love the idea that God would judge the really bad people out there, then what you're doing is you're saying that God should judge others, but not you. And that's just not how it works. It's not how it works. You know, there's, there's something in us that deeply, like we want justice in the world, right? We want God to judge. We want God to make things right. We want him to give evildoers their due. We want him to, to purge this world of evil, to, to fix things, right? Don't you feel like something deep in your bones, like something's wrong in the world? We need God to come and be the one who is just and the judge to make things right. But here's the thing. Uh, there's something in us that says, bring on the judgment and justice of God. God, please make things right. And we're right to want that. But here's the thing. The judgment that comes is identical. He doesn't judge some people one way and other people another way. He judges us all based on the same standard. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, right? God does not show partiality. So here's where we are. Deep down, we want God to judge the world, to make things right, to fix this present world. And yet we're sinners. And if God is going to judge the world impartially by sending a flood or a fire or whatever God's going to do, then we're all goners, all of us. Unless your house is built on the rock. See, the storm of God's wrath is coming. I know we don't like to talk about that too much. It's nicer to talk about nice things. I get that. But you can't read Jesus in the Gospels and not come away with the reality that hell is real. Eternal judgment is real. The wrath of God is real. Jesus brings it up many times. And Jesus here is saying, if you do what I say, you'll withstand the storm. He's showing you the narrow path that escapes the wrath of God. He's telling you how to be on the ark in the flood. He is telling you how to be shielded from the fire. That's what he's doing here. Now, I know some of you in here, you're looking at this parable closely, and you're hearing what I'm saying right now, and you're thinking, wait a minute, Jesus is saying that the wise one who will be saved is the one who does good deeds. But how does that align with our belief that people are justified solely by their faith in Jesus? It's a good theological question, isn't it? Because the Bible does teach that we as humans are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's not what we do. It's what Christ has done by dying on the cross and rising again to save us. That's what saves us. Jesus is the one who saves us. It's not by our works. It's by faith alone. But you know, the Bible also teaches that on the last day, we will be justified in accordance with our works. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives will back up the declaration of justification that has been pronounced over us. This is what you see in James when he says, faith without works is dead. So when Jesus here says that those who live according to his works will, his words will be saved, he's not saying that the basis for your salvation is your works. He's saying the evidence for your salvation is your works. And those works are necessary. Those works are important. That evidence is vital. It's not the root of your salvation, but it will be the fruit of your salvation. Good works are what prove the validity of your faith. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And it should be a challenge to all of us, even those who who believe that we're justified by faith in Jesus. Is our life matching up with what we say we believe? Do we say Jesus is Lord and then live as if we're the Lord of our own lives? Because it's the evidence that will show whether our faith is genuine or not. So that's where we stand this morning. Jesus, the king, giving us a gracious warning. There are two outcomes that are possible for these builders. The first destiny is glorious. The storm of God's wrath comes and the wise man's house stays standing. Built on the rock of Jesus Christ and his teaching, we are safe Jesus' words, we the shield against the storm. We believe in Jesus, and we show that we believe in him by obeying him. The second outcome is horrible. The house falls. Great is the crash. Destruction. Despair. Never again to be given another chance. The storm has come, and the foolish man has perished. Listen, it doesn't matter what your life looks like how many possessions you have how much insurance you have how much money you have in the bank for retirement how many family members you have how long you've been a church member Jesus calls us to build his life uh, to build our lives on his teaching if you do that you'll be part of the house that lasts forever so that's the question for us what will our response be which way will we go this morning as we come to a close we have the opportunity to not only hear from our lord but to be invited to his table to commune with him jesus speaks to us through his word and then he shows us through the lord's supper what he has done for us so if you are out there and you need a, uh, um, uh, the, the, the elements, there, there are ushers that will have those for you if you didn't pick one on the way in. But I invite you, if you are a uh, visitor with us, if you're a, a baptized believer, member of another, a member of Good Standing in another local church, please, we welcome you to this table to join with us as we join with our Lord. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. First Corinthians, he said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ broken for you. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ shed for you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with me as we recite this together? And so in remembrance of these, Your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.